Well, good morning. It's, uh, as always, great to sing with you. I have been to uh, numerous churches over the years, and um, often there is a group up front singing uh, to the Lord and everyone else. And uh, I enjoy that at Parkside, we are all singing, and uh, you can hear it. I love the volume coming from, uh, from the crowd out here. Amen, Woody. And so uh, it, that's, that's the sound of worshiping together. That's the sound of entering into worship and not just hearing it or listening to it or watching someone else do it. And so uh, I love to worship here at Parkside. Take your Bible, if you would. Take, turn to uh, John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have one with you, you can uh, grab one from the pew in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, take that one with you. That's yours. It's our gift to you. We would love for you to uh, leave with the Word of God if you came in without it. We're looking at John chapter 3. And today we're going to do a brief time on verses 16 through 21. And so I asked the question before we start, how is a person supposed to preach on the best loved and most well-known verse in the Bible? Well, with fear and trembling is the answer. I'm going to read to us and then we'll pray in a moment. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning as a congregation celebrating the truth of these verses, celebrating your love for us. We acknowledge that you are holy and almighty God. We acknowledge that you are holy other. Your being is not dependent upon our being, but our being is entirely dependent upon yours. We acknowledge this morning that you are holy, that you are righteous. And we rejoice that you have made yourself known to us. Small creatures though we are and fallen, even worse. And you've made yourself known to us. And not only have you made yourself known, but because of your love for us, you sent your son, gave him,
that he would obey you, that he would be who we should have been, that he would live the life we should have lived, and that he would die the death we should have died so that we wouldn't have to, but so that by faith in him, rather than perishing, we would have eternal life. And so we rejoice in that truth. We, we uh, will rejoice forever for that truth. And Father, as we turn to your word this morning, as we look at this passage, we do ask that you would speak to us by your spirit. Pray that you would convict us of the truth of, of what we read in your word. Help us to set aside distraction. Help us to be here and help us to hear from you as your word is proclaimed. I pray that you would be glorified in this time and that we would be built up. I pray even that you would use this message to draw some to yourself out of darkness to light. So, Father, we ask for your blessing. We ask that you would be honored. We ask that your love would be clearly proclaimed, that you would be known this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are probably as many ways to misunderstand God as there are people on the earth. I haven't looked at the research. I don't know that for certain. I'm just guessing. But I think it's a pretty educated guess. And as usually is the case when uh, a lie is very convincing, there's some truth mixed in. And uh, that is the case with the two misconceptions of God that, that I want to look at in order to start our time this morning. One misconception of God that, that is prevalent in our world is that God is love and only love. In this conception, since God is love and since wrath is obviously incompatible with love, then everything will work out in the end for everybody. All will eventually be forgiven. Everyone will somehow be okay in the end. We will all be in heaven with God one day because God is love. Well, the problem with this view, of course, is the Bible. And uh, we will clearly see in our passage even today that there are those who will suffer condemnation and they will themselves bear the full wrath of God forever in hell. And so this first conception of God is indeed a misconception. But there's another misconception of God, and that's, that's a, a common one also. And that's the idea that the Old Testament is the story of an angry, vengeful God. And uh, that God is mad and he is punishing people and, and this is the Father. And, of course, you get to the New Testament and, and the, the reading gets better because Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus loves people. And whereas the Father was angry and wrathful towards mankind, here you have Jesus who loves mankind and Jesus himself is going to wrestle uh, some kind of uh, begrudging mercy from the Father instead of the wrath that, that the Father wants to pour out. And so you have almost... The father is the bad guy. He's the vengeful one. And Jesus is the good guy who brings the love. And, and, uh, and so we cheer for Jesus. And, <clears throat> of course, that misconception has a lot of forms, but it's problematic. And the problem with this view, of course, once again, is that it doesn't come from the Bible. If you've read your Old Testament, and I hope you have, 
If you've not, then I encourage you to open it and start reading. It won't take all that long to uh, read the Old Testament. And I encourage you to read it. But in uh, the Old Testament, we will find great expressions of God's love for people so that we see that the God of the Old Testament is not some wrathful, vengeful, angry God who's just looking to destroy until Jesus comes on the scene and saves the day. Instead, we read, for example, in Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the Old Testament. And so this second conception of God is indeed a misconception. It's a misrepresentation of who God is. It's a misunderstanding of the Bible. The, the true biblical conception of who God is is neither one of those things. And there are lots of other errors, of course, we could look at. The Bible teaches that God is unchanging. From first to last, God is indeed loving. However, from chapter 3 of the book, we see that God is also grievously offended by the treachery, by the sin of His creation. The people who owed Him their allegiance, who owed Him their lives, instead turned against Him. And so there is a very great love that God has for His people, and there is at the same time wrath against sin. And those two coexist. Those two are both true. And so in our passage today, we're going to see how God deals with that problem. How God presents Himself, portrays Himself in His Word and in His actions to be a God who is neither the vengeful God who has to have some sort of peace and mercy wrested from Him by the loving Son, nor is He only love so that everything will work out okay in the end. And so we turn to John 3.16 and we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. This verse talks about the gift of the Son, the gift which is the Son, and it's rooted in the Father's love. You see, God so loved the world that He gave His Son. It was the Father's love that was the origin of this gift that was given. It wasn't that He was mad and Jesus got in the way. God's love was great, his love for his people, and rooted in that we find the gospel. Jesus didn't come of his independent choice as if he wanted to head off what the Father was going to accomplish, as if the Father was going to destroy us all and Jesus stood in the way and as if there was some kind of competition between them or if they came from two different places. The, the gospel comes from God's love. The gospel is rooted in and stems from the Father's love. In fact, our memory verse of the month, and I'm sure you're still doing your memory verses every month, 
Uh, you'll see in your bulletin there, you'll see the memory verse for this month. It's Romans 8, 32, which says a very similar thing. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who did the giving? Who did not spare his son? It was the Father. It was the Father. The gospel is rooted in the Father's love. So we see God so loved the world, but we see also the gift. God so loved the world that He gave, that He gave His Son. So I have a question for you. How do you know that a person truly loves you? How do you know that a person truly loves you? Well, of course, it's nice when a person says that to you. It's nice. It's a good thing. And it's a strong part of a, of, of a strong marriage is when a husband tells a wife, I love you. And the wife tells the husband, I love you. That's encouraging and that's strong. That's important. You need to do that. But how do you know if someone loves you truly? Well, it's by their actions. And if their words are not backed up by their actions then you have reason to question whether that person truly does love you despite what they say. Well, this verse says that He demonstrated, He showed. God loved the world and didn't just say it, but He sent. He gave His only Son. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't just tell us. By the way, if God tells you and doesn't show you, that's enough. Because God speaks truth. But God tells us and He shows us. And He shows us in a very powerful way by the giving of His Son. The Father's love is tangible. It's a real demonstration. It's not only words. But He shows us in that He gave His only Son. For God so loved the world. English is uh, like every language. It has its limitations. And the word so there can be misunderstood in English. It can be misunderstood to, to mean God loved the world so much to such a great extent that He gave His Son. As if God's love was growing or, or it, it outweighed his other demands, his demands for justice, his demands for righteousness. And he loved us so much that he was willing to overlook those other things. Or he, it, it outweighed those other aspects of his character. But that's not true. The word so in English can be taken another way. And in Greek, this is the way that's intended. He loved the world and thus... He gave His Son. He loved the world. And what, what did that look like when He did that? He gave His Son. He loved the world in such a way that He gave His Son. The word so here refers to how God loved us, not the extent to which, as if, as if the extent of God's love were in question somehow, as if there was a competition within the character of God about one winning out over the other. God has always loved. And He demonstrates His love. In that, He sends His Son. God so loved the world. God thus loved the world. In that, 
He sent His Son. It has always been God's desire. It has always been God's plan that He, out of His love, would save sinners, would redeem sinners. I've said before and I'll say again that the cross is not plan B. It's plan A. From the beginning, that's been God's desire, God's intention, that that's what He's going to accomplish. And so we see the gift. And what about the purpose, the Father's purpose? The purpose for which something is done is very important. It's, uh, it helps us give meaning to the event. It helps us understand what's really going on. An example of this is our language study time when we were in Russia. We were in language school for a couple of years. And when you're a student, you're told to do things you don't understand the purpose of. You just do it because they tell you to do it. And at the beginning of every class, every day, we would start off with five or ten minutes of making the silliest noises you've ever thought of. Our class would sit together, and there were only about four or five of us in the room, so you're nose-to-nose with your classmates, right? And we would make these noises that I'm not going to demonstrate for you. (laughs) You were really hoping. (laughs) We would make these sounds, and they were the dumbest things, and it seemed to be unrelated to this, what we were studying in the lesson. You couldn't find a connection between the noises we were making in the first five minutes and what we studied in the subsequent hours. We had no idea. We were just making these noises. And here, this very dignified teacher would sit there and, and say this goofy noise, and we would repeat it. And then another goofy noise, and we would repeat it. And it wasn't until some time had passed, and we began to get compliments from Russians. Native Russian speakers who didn't speak English. And when we would do our best to talk to, to them, though we made grammatical mistakes and our vocabulary was limited and, and all of that, they always complimented us on our pronunciation. That we didn't sound like Americans. The American accent, when we go and try and learn Russian, can be very grating on a Russian ear. And they didn't hear that on us because of these goofy sounds that we had made. These sounds that are inherent in the Russian language that every two-year-old can make, we had to learn by doing this goofy routine. But the purpose became clear, and it it wasn't until that purpose came to the forefront that, that we began to understand why we were making those sounds to one another and trying not to laugh at our teachers, but it was helping with our pronunciation. And the result was that people would sometimes think we were Russian when we spoke Russian because of silly exercise. The purpose for which something is done is very important because it gives meaning to the event itself. And God's purpose for giving His Son was to save those who believe, to keep them from, to rescue them from perishing. His purpose was to give everlasting life to all who believe in His Son. That was the reason He did it. That was the purpose for it. He wanted to give eternal life to all who believe in Him. I've had conversations with unbelievers where the cross just befuddles them. What a ridiculous thing. And we even use the illustration of the example sometimes as if the the cross sort of represents kind of like an electric chair or something nowadays. And, And for someone who doesn't understand all that's going on, that makes it even worse. Because why would you celebrate that? Why would you want to talk about that? Why would you hang one of those up in your church? But once you understand the purpose, 
for which it was done. Once you understand the purpose, the reason God gave his son, it becomes beautiful. And you can appreciate it. And it gives meaning to the event that otherwise would not have been there. And so an application for us this morning is we need to give thanks to the Father and we need to worship Him for the profound gift that He gave. That He would give His own Son to redeem sinners like you and me. And so that's why we sing songs to Him when we get together. That's why we worship Him the way we do. That's why we raise our hands in song. That's why we are brought to tears and worship sometimes because we are calling to mind that gift that He gave for us. Secondly, what's the goal of the gift? Let's kind of expound on that a little bit. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The goal was for salvation. Was for salvation. He, di- he didn't send the Son to condemn. He sent the Son in order that the world might be saved through him. It's a gift given. The Son is a gift given for our salvation. The two misconceptions of God that we looked at earlier are cleared up in this verse. God truly does have wrath towards sin. He really and truly does. And it's a true part of who He is. He hates sin and He will punish sin. That's who He is. And He is love. And so He sends the Son to be the one who is born into this world like us and yet always obedient to the Father so that Jesus, walking in perfect obedience to the Father, would be righteous in Himself and be the one who'd go to the cross to bear the penalty for your sin and for my sin. So that God's wrath is just and righteous and good wrath is righteously and justly poured out for sin. Poured out on the Son. So that His wrath, His justice is met And he can show love in redeeming sinners. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. You ever thought about that? What would that look like if Jesus were sent to condemn? Well, I don't think, I don't think that would uh, only mean Jesus coming into the world with a sword and killing everybody. He, he could have, and that would have been right and just. But in, in what realistic way could Jesus have been sent to condemn? Well, think about the Son of Man living a perfect life, always being obedient. What would that do for us? It would take away every excuse we think we have. We don't obey God. That's because because we're human. That's because we're human. Well, here's Jesus, a true human, walking in obedience his entire life to the Father. There goes that excuse. That would be condemnation to us if Jesus were to have lived a righteous life and then gone away. See, I told you so. See, that's how it's done. And God would have been just in destroying us in light of Jesus' perfect life, in light of His obedience. But He did not send the Son to condemn us, but to save. 
He did indeed live that perfect life, which, by the way, is a rebuke to us. Because Jesus, as a man, walked in obedience, and we do not. We have no excuse. But he also went to the cross. He also died to bear the wrath for sin. And so the result is not condemnation for those who believe, but salvation for those who trust in his name. So the purpose, the goal is for salvation and it's through the Son that that they might be saved through him. In Acts 4 we read, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is located only in Jesus. And that's not just because that's how God decided to do it, as if it were arbitrary. Jesus is the God-man. He becomes one of us and obeys in our place. And He's a perfect representative of God so that His death on the cross can avail as him, Himself being God, His, his death on the cross, that, that payment can avail for a multitude, not just for one other person. His death is of infinite value. And so salvation is only to be found in Him. That's why we preach Christ. This wasn't just the way God drew from a hat. This is how He redeems sinners. This is how He sets Jesus up as the mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. And so this salvation is through His Son. And finally, this salvation is by faith. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Faith is the essence. Faith is what is required. One of the reasons that faith, that salvation must be by faith, is due to our own depraved nature. That we in ourselves cannot do or accomplish anything pure, anything holy and worthy of God, anything that would be perfectly acceptable to a perfect and holy God. Anything we have to offer is going to be tainted to one degree or another, whether we see it or not, whether we like it or not. There's nothing that we could accomplish that would be satisfying to a perfect God because of our own depravity. And so we can't contribute by some kind of works by doing a certain thing, by following a certain order or accomplishing anything on our own because of our own depravity that spoils that. But faith is different. Faith looks away from the self. True faith looks away from me to another, to rely upon another, to rely upon Christ who was pure and holy in his life whose life and whose sacrifice, it was acceptable to God. And so we look away from ourselves, not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in anything that we could accomplish, not trusting in in anything that we could do or any affection or emotion that we could work up. We look away from ourselves and we look to Jesus. We look to what He's done, to His life, His life of obedience to be our righteousness before God. His death on the cross to be the source of our forgiveness. 
so that we stand before God and we have peace with Him because of Christ and because of Christ alone. And so salvation is through the Son and it is by faith and it is by faith alone. We look away from ourselves. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He continues to look to himself. Thinking that somehow in himself he can do what's required to avoid the wrath of God. Either by denying the existence of God or by building up his own worth, his own accomplishment. So the application for us is that we need to understand the root of condemnation. The root of condemnation is an unwillingness to look beyond oneself to another. To Christ. At the heart of a person's unbelief is the foolish and sinful certainty that he himself has what it takes to escape the wrath of God. You don't have what it takes to escape the wrath of God. And so the command here is to repent, to abandon that course of action, to abandon that course of belief, to turn away from yourself and turn to Christ and look to Him and trust in Him for His finished work. There and only there will we find what is required for us to have peace with God. So we move to our third and final point, the grounds of judgment. The grounds of judgment. We read 19 through 21, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. First, the light comes. And you can tell that's sort of our unifying theme for our Christmas messages this year, is the light of of the world. Light coming from God that He shines, that He gives us. And here, the light comes. But just as a, the same scalpel can give life or take it, can spare life or take it, can preserve life or take life, the light coming into the world can result in condemnation or can result in salvation. The light comes. Jesus' life and character shows us just what God expects. His life, His character, who Jesus is, is such a sharp contrast to our behavior that it causes two distinct reactions to the light coming. The first is that some hate the light. The light comes into the world and some hate it. They hate it. They don't want anything to do with it. Their works are evil. And they know that the light will expose their works for what they are, for the the true evil, the depth of the evil of their works, of their lives. The light will show just how abhorrent their lives really are. How this applies in the life of a person whose works are evil and an unbeliever who's unwilling to come to God because his evilness would be exposed is pretty clear. Whoever does wicked things hates the light. But Christian, it has application for us as well. You probably know you've experienced some time in your own life where you've sinned, where you've you've been confronted with some temptation 
And maybe you've entertained that temptation. You've nurtured it. You've flirted with it. And then it moves from temptation to a kind of sin of the mind where if you had the opportunity, you would do that thing. And you toy with that because after all, you're not really doing anything. You're not really pursuing it. You're not really sinning, right? You're just thinking about it. You're just planning it. You're just wishing the obstacles that would keep you from sinning were removed so that you could do that thing. Next thing you know, you find yourself removing those obstacles and doing that thing. And what happens to your heart? Do you, do you want to wake up the next day early to read your Bible? Do you want to come to church and, and sing with believers? Do you want to have a, a, a close, personal conversa- conversation of fellowship with another believer who's, who's going to ask you about your life, who's going to have true fellowship with you where you talk about the important things, talk about the Lord? No, you don't want that. That would be coming to the light. Christian, we have this same tendency within us. When we sin, it causes us not to want to be with other believers. It causes us not to want to come to church. If we do come to church, it causes us to want to come in late and leave early. We don't want to interact with other Christians. We don't want to be confronted with our sin. We become like those who, whose works are evil and hate the light, don't want to come to it. And Christian, if, if that's you, if you find yourself in that place... You need to be careful. You you need to repent. That's a dangerous place to be. That's called the deceitfulness of sin in Hebrews chapter 3. That's not something we want. You need to repent of that. You need to search your own heart and see what it is that makes you not want to be with other Christians. Not want to fellowship with them. Not want to open your Bible. Not want to pray. Not want to come to church. What is that? Search your heart and see and ask the Lord to reveal to you what that is. And you need to repent of that thing. You need to love the light and come to the light. A second reaction to the light is that some draw near. Some draw near. Whoever does what is true, verse 21, comes to the light. There are some who draw near. They they, they, they want to come to the light. They approach it so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What does it mean to, that he does what is true? What is the true response, the right response to Jesus' light? What is that true response? The answer is that the revelation from Jesus as he is the light that reveals our sin and reveals his righteousness the true response to that should be to turn away from ourself, away from trusting in ourself in despair. There's only despair here. Turn away from that. Instead, we turn and find hope in Christ. The true response to the righteousness of Christ, the true response to the light of the world coming into the world is that we turn away from self and our own accomplishments. We acknowledge, yes, my deeds are evil. I've got nothing to commend me to the Father. And we look away. We confess those for what they are. They are sin. And we look away from ourselves, And we look to Christ. And we see His righteousness. And we say, yeah, I, I come into the light and it, it reveals the darkness within me. But I want that light. I want the light of who Jesus is. 
I want His righteousness applied to my account. I want the forgiveness I have in Him. I want there to be relationship, fellowship. I want to be unified with Him. I don't want to be separated from Him anymore. I want to be in the light. I want to be unified with the light. That's the true response. That's the one who does what is true where we turn away from our own actions, trusting in our own actions. We confess them and we find forgiveness, peace and righteousness and joy and the gift of eternal life in Christ Himself. So this is the Christmas season where we give gifts to each other and They should be reminders of this one true and perfect gift. Our application for this final point, I think, is is this. We who have done what is true and come to the light need to humble ourselves and recognize that any true works that we have done have been carried out in God. That's how he concludes the paragraph. His works have been carried out in God. We come to the light that our lives may be seen, that that this change may be shown, that we may see, that we may demonstrate to others, that we can show off not what we've accomplished, but we can show off what Christ has accomplished in us, that the works that we have done have been done in God. Christians should be the humblest of people. There should never be an accusation that that Christians are prideful, that they're arrogant. Those accusations are going to exist. Sometimes they're true. We should be the humblest of people because we are the ones who have done what is true. And what is true in the face of the light? That is to recognize our own fallenness, our own weakness, our own depravity, our own lack. the, the, The offensiveness, the offense of our actions against God. And have confessed them. We've forsaken them. We don't, we, we don't want them anymore. We don't want to follow that course of action, that course of life. We want the light. And we have come to the light. That it may be seen and clearly known that our works have been done in God. God has been at work in us. The only thing good and right and true in me is from God Himself. And so Christians, we should be the humblest of people. Christians are the ones who should be the most deeply grateful for the undeserved, gracious, lavish gift given by the Father, the one and only Son of God given up for us that by faith in Him we should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we... We want to look hard and think hard about this gift that you've given us, the gift of Christ, your only Son, given for us that we might have life, that by faith in you we would be redeemed, not condemned, have eternal life instead of perishing. What what a great gift. What an amazing, impossible to plumb the depths gift. Father, we we rejoice. I thank you and I praise you for this gift that has given me eternal life and given eternal life to so many here. Father, we rejoice and we'll rejoice in that forever. The only thing we have to offer is Christ. 
The only thing good and right and true in us is Christ. It's what He's done. Any good work we have, any upstanding thing we've done has been worked in us by God. So we rejoice. And we come before you humbly, knowing this is not our doing. This is not something we accomplished. And as we give gifts at Christmas, may we be reminded of that. The person we're giving this gift to doesn't deserve it, but it's a blessing to them. And this gift of your son for us is definitely one we don't deserve. And what a blessing he is. So, Father, we thank you. Profoundly, we thank you. I pray that you would help us to rejoice in this gift. I pray for those who don't know you, who who have been confronted with the light even this morning. I pray that they would no longer hate the light, but that they would come to the light, that they would turn away from themselves, that they would do what is true, that they would acknowledge their own guilt, their own sin, their own debt before you, that they would acknowledge that, turn from that, confess and repent and turn to Christ. Look to Him. Look to His finished accomplished, completed work that is satisfactory to you, that they would no longer be condemned, but instead that they would have life. I pray that you would do that even this morning. Give life. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just one more reminder as we're on our way out. Uh, please stop by and see Brianna in the back if you are one who works in children's church or Sunday school uh, or in the nursery. If you're one of the volunteers who works with with children, Brianna wants to give you a gift to uh, bless you for that because we praise God for you. See her in the back if you would. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen and amen. There'll be a family up here who wants to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you and you are dismissed.